Entwined is a podcast about how so much of the world around us is wound or twisted together. This podcast strives to bear unexposed or indiscernible connections using historical and anecdotal sources. I am P.S. McKay, and along with Elliot Gladstone, this is Entwined. Hello everyone, welcome back to our long-awaited return. Elliot and I, due to our personal obligations, are unable to make the original pace of a podcast every two weeks like we used to. But we still loved doing this show. To us, it was never abandoned, just delayed. So while you won't hear from us as regularly, you definitely can count on us working on new shows. I myself have two different episodes in the can right now. I hope you enjoy our latest labor of love, and stay twined. The following episode uses facts and research taken from the book The Disappearing Spoon, written by Sam Keen and published by Little, Brown, and Company in 2010. If this episode intrigues you for more information relating to the elements and how they influenced humanity, please look into purchasing the book at your local bookstore or Amazon. Sometimes we need to give credit where credit is due. So San Diego Comic-Con came and went. In my opinion, it was a bit underwhelming. You can't really expect much when Disney decides not to have much presence there, and Disney now equals 40% of all entertainment in the United States. But there was one trailer I was impressed with. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It looked epic, it had scale, and you had familiar monsters. It was set to the track of Claire de Lune, a piece that requires numerous different parts to work in symphony to get right. Perhaps it's a foreshadowing of a team-up that Godzilla will need to fight King Ghidorah. Now, I was never a Godzilla nerd. I enjoyed the films as a kid, but didn't invest myself into knowing each monster in their history. So, I'll be seeing this film with some fresh eyes. But it was the trailer that talked about the human race and how we are an infection on the earth. Those monsters are the immune response to set the balance. It got me thinking about its very history. Now, newsflash, Godzilla, the destroyer of cities, the king of the monsters, is an allegory for nuclear power. I know, not exactly groundbreaking news there. But it stands to rehash why Godzilla exists in the first place. It was representative of the scars that the Japanese, as a nation, had to live with from the fallout of being the only country to have nuclear bombs dropped on it as a tactical maneuver. Godzilla was the manifestation a decade later of dealing with that pain, the fallout. It's interesting as the films progressed, Godzilla, this monster, this pain, slowly began to turn into an anti-hero for humanity. He fought off the other monsters, and when the battle was done, he didn't turn on the nearest city and continue the rampage. He went off to sleep and recover in the depths of the ocean. Just look at the Godzilla from 2014. He was the alpha predator that was meant to keep the balance on Earth. His sole purpose was to destroy the Mutos and prevent them from breeding. Once it was done, 
he was celebrated as he walked off back into the ocean. Maybe it's symbolic of an empowerment of our pain. Maybe it shows how we can adapt and work in the face of adversity, using our weaknesses as a tool to gain the upper hand. I'm sure there's articles written about it in a deeper detail, but I remain ignorant and limited to my own musings. But it's interesting to think that if those nuclear bombs had not been dropped on Japan, we would not have Godzilla to entertain us. Kind of a macabre trade-off, isn't it? I also need to point out that Godzilla is not the only manifestation of pain a nation suffered due to an environmental fallout. Now this story begins in 1912 near the Kamioka mines of Japan. Doctors began to notice rice farmers from the region coming in doubled over in pain from joints and bones. They would suffer from kidney failure, and most horribly, the disease would soften the bones. One doctor inadvertently broke the wrist of a young girl by taking her pulse. It skewed heavily female as well, women making up 49 of every 50 cases. The disease continued and began to explode over the next few decades as Japan militarized getting ready for World War II. It became known as Itai Itai, or the Ouch Ouch Disease. A more literal translation would be, it hurts, it hurts. Unfortunately, it wasn't until after the war that a doctor by the name of Noboru Hagino was able to look into the pathology of the disease. He focused around the Kamioka region as the disease seemed to be centered around the mines. After being unable to pinpoint malnutrition as the source of the disease, he focused on how the mines worked. He took an epidemiological map of the disease and overlaid it with the hydrological map of Kamioka. They looked almost identical, showing that the disease was prevalent along the Jinzu River. The Jinzu River happened to flow through the Kamioka mines. Then it irrigated the farmer's fields miles away. After testing the crops along the river, Hagino realized that the culprit for Itai Itai was in fact a single element, cadmium. A little history about Kamioka, Japan. The mines had existed since 710 AD. Over the centuries, the mountains had yielded gold, lead, silver, copper, and other various elements, one of which was the element cadmium. Now over that time, cadmium had not been recognized for its importance right away. In fact, it was nearly indistinguishable from zinc, as they would commingle in the Earth's crust. It was the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 through 1905 that put a new value into the need for zinc, blending it into its airplanes, armor, and munition alloys. They would use acid and percolate it to remove the zinc from the perceived useless cadmium. That would be dumped out with the sludge into the stream, or onto the ground. Unknowingly, it leached into the water table. An unfortunate oversight that ramped up as the war efforts continued. Here's the thing. Zinc and cadmium are related elements, and when consumed, the human body will use cadmium in its system just as readily as it uses zinc. But cadmium doesn't function the same as zinc. It's only just similar. It also can force out sulfur and calcium, which explains why it affected so many farmers' bones. 
The initial assumption of malnutrition also played a large part in the disease, as the villagers' diets in the area depended heavily on rice. That lack of nutritional diversity accelerated Itai Itai's proliferation. Cadmium mimicked the minerals those people's bodies craved due to their limited diet. As such, that painful element was welcomed into the body as it was metabolized. Dr. Hagino went public with his findings in 1961. The mining company understandably fought the validity of the research. Upon the review of an independent committee that heavily leaned towards the mining company, even they could not deny the evidence. They ruled that cadmium was the result of the disease, and by 1972, the mining company began to pay restitution to the 178 survivors who collectively sought more than 2.3 billion yen annually. That would be almost $21 million a year today. Nowadays, cadmium is far too valuable to dump into a river or ditch into an industrial strain. That metal is now used as a lining for batteries and computer parts in order to prevent corroding. Chances are, you have that very element in your ear as you listen to this episode with your earbud. It's interesting to note how even some insidious elements that can destroy the body from within happen to be used as safe and very useful tools in our very lives. Kind of like how Godzilla, once the monster of humanity, is now its helper. One more thing. In the movie Godzilla 1985, the only other movie where Godzilla was fighting humans, the Japanese military deployed cadmium-tipped missiles to destroy it. Given how nuclear bombs had scarred this nation, that is an interesting way to use an element that not only caused so much suffering, but could be its very salvation.